You're listening to the So What Podcast, where we discuss biblical and theological topics to ask the obvious question. I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by Matt O'Reilly, Travis Buchanan, and Lanier Wood. The So What Podcast is recorded in partnership with the University of Mobile, a Christ-centered academic community providing liberal arts and professional programs on campus and at a distance. You can find out more information at www.umobile.edu. If you enjoy the show, you can help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As we dive into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we are first greeted with a list of characteristics. This list describes someone who is truly blessed within God's economy. We call this list the Beatitudes, and it comes from a Latin word meaning happiness or better, blessedness. The Beatitudes are a very well-known passage in the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Bible in general. Many people will recognize the familiar formula of blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. What a better way to begin a sermon on human flourishing and our relationship to our Creator than to learn from the Son of God Himself what it means to experience true blessing, the divine favor from God. Now, for the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is outside. He's in an area that is open. He's up on a mountain, and he takes a, we're told, specific position, which is sitting. Is there any significance behind any of these details that Matthew is recording about this sermon? As Matthew records a sermon, he tells a setting of Jesus sitting down, which is actually a posture of authority of that rabbis, they would teach as people would receive. Whereas our teachers stand and our people sit, the teacher sat and people came to listen. So you see Jesus doing that, taking a posture of authority at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, if we were there and we were in this culture, we would know exactly what he was about to do. Like he's sitting for a very specific purpose. This is an important message that he's about to give us. So we need to... Yes, the sign to listen. You know, the teacher pulls his chair out from his desk, stands up at the chalkboard. Jesus sat down. What's the significance about the mountain then? Like, why not do this in a synagogue or in a market? Yeah, so throughout Scripture, mountains tend to be associated with the divine presence. So in the Old Testament, when uh, Moses gets the covenant, it happens on a mountain. And there's some, probably some allusion to that here. You have Jesus going up a mountain, and he gives some commentary, some not and really more than commentary, some internalization of the Mosaic law. You've heard it said, but I say to you coming up later on. So he's going to intensify the commandments. He doesn't sidestep them. He intensifies them. We'll get into that, I'm sure, in later episodes. But yeah, so there's a lot of that kind of law on the mountain, commandments, Jesus embodying the presence of God, perhaps here as well. It's also important that there are five major speeches from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first one, and it comes after some key events in his life. We mentioned authority a moment ago, and that authority that he's now embodying kind of comes after John the Baptist in chapter 3 declares that the Messiah is coming, the one the prophet spoke of is about to arrive, and then you have Jesus baptized by John, 
You have the voice from heaven declaring, this is my son, the beloved with whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus goes immediately into the wilderness as kind of this period of trial and testing. He proves his worth after being tempted by Satan. And only then does he begin his ministry, calls the disciples, and then kind of the first major thing he does is go up on this mountain and give this authoritative teaching on the law. Mm -hmm. So what's attracting people then to Jesus, according to Matthew at this point? Those things that we just heard about him being baptized in this miraculous statement that the Father gives of his pleasure of the Son, and then his temptation, those things are very significant, but would it draw the crowds necessarily? This is one of the places where the chapter break is inconvenient. Mm Mm-hmm. Because if you go back, if you just want to read the Sermon on the Mount, you start at chapter 5, Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And if you start there, you miss why the crowds come. If you back up to the end of chapter 4, we are told that Jesus went around Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And alongside that, he's curing diseases, he's healing sicknesses, he's casting out demons, he's uh, healing epileptics, curing various kinds of paralysis. And the crowds see that and start following him around to all these different cities. And so that's where, at the beginning of chapter 5, you get all these crowds are following Jesus. So he goes onto this mountain, takes a instructive, authoritative posture, and then begins to teach them about the law. I think it's also significant, too, that Matthew tells us where this crowd comes from. Pretty much everywhere. Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and even beyond Jordan. So when you're thinking about the crowd, these are all people that have heard about Jesus and his miracles, they've heard his teaching, and they've been intrigued. And it's not necessarily that they're Jews. There appears to be Jews, Gentiles, and people perhaps even from the different classes within those two ethnicities. So Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes showing up as well to hear what Jesus has to say. So this is quite a mixed bag of people that we see in the crowds, in addition to his disciples who he's just called, making an appearance as well. So seeing the crowds, it says, Verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And then he begins with these blessed are statements that we're all very familiar with, perhaps one of the most well-known parts of this sermon. The first thing you notice is the form changes when you get to this part in your English Bibles. I think most translations I've seen, it's set off like a poem. And I think that's important and says some things. It makes you stop and slow down. A third of the Hebrew Bible is poetry essentially. We live in a very prosaic age, but it's interesting that a large amount of God's revelation to us comes in the form of poetry. And there's something, I think, one has to be inspired to write poetry is an idea. So there's something kind of intuitively prophetic about that, that if I'm going to give you something in a more complicated form, that it's going to contain perhaps a heightened importance or some claim to inspiration. And we see that from other markers in the text. We talked about Jesus ascending a mountain. You go up the mountain to bring down the word of God to the people like Moses did. The oracles of God are spoken in the high places. And so I just think that's significant that the sermon begins that way. You could see an implicit claim to inspiration perhaps for the Jewish audience that's there initially in that. These are pronouncements of divine favor. So they're not wishes or a prayer like, God, please bless the poor and do this for them. It's a statement of a reality, but it's an alternative reality that we don't really see on a regular basis because you look at the destitute or the poor and you think 
they look more cursed than they do blessed. They might not have enough to eat or a place to live or they're completely dependent on the alms of the people. You know, Luke in the Sermon on the Plain, he leaves out spirit. It just says, blessed are the poor. And it's that word for the destitute in society, not just those that you know live below the poverty line, so to speak in America, but those that are completely dependent upon almsgiving for their sustenance and would die Which if no in, one gave. In the context here is a lot of people yeah. in the ancient world. Yeah. So before we get into the particulars of that, we probably need to talk about this word blessed. Good point. Especially in a day when you might be driving down the interstate and see a bumper sticker that says, too blessed to be stressed. Yeah, your hashtag, like hashtag blessed. Right. Is that what Jesus has in mind here? Or does he have something else going on? What do you think? So I don't think he has in mind the kind of, and this will, I think, become particularly clear as we work through these. He doesn't have the kind of, in mind, the kind of blessings that people put on the back of bumper stickers on the back of a Cadillac. Right. Material He's blessings? not thinking in terms of material blessings mm-hmm. like American dream. I've got a house. I've got a car. I'm too blessed to be stressed. Everything's going great. Because he's going to talk about blessed are people who are persecuted, right? Blessed are you when people revile you. And that's not typically what we associate there. So this isn't kind of, you know, where we've, we've discussed in previous episodes when we interviewed Dr. Pennington, we're not dealing with kind of surface level, emotional, transitory happiness. There's a deeper thing happening here. We've used the language of human flourishing. That's what Jesus is after here, this deep experience of fullness, flourishing, wholeness, holiness. It's hard to imagine being happy and being persecuted and reviled. So what Jesus is not saying is, if you're one of my disciples or you want to unlock the key to human flourishing, then I expect you to grin and bear in happiness the reviling and the persecution that you experience. So one of the words I've been toying around with and planning to preach through some of this material soon, what does it mean to thrive? There's a medical term, right? Failure to thrive. It means someone, they're not actively dying, but they're kind of not really in a, in a healthy place as well. And so maybe what Jesus gives here are important components of a life that can be said to that it, a thriving human life. You could think about persecution or revilement or those kinds of things in terms of thriving in God's design and purposes Am I going to seek after my own and avoid those kinds of things? Or am I going to be given over to God's purposes regardless of what comes? Because that's really what full human life looks like. I was thinking about the, I mean, noticing, and I think this fills that out some, as Jesus speaks, he uses, I mean, there, it's a form of conditional. If theirs is the kingdom of heaven, if you're poor in spirit, rather, then theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see that throughout. And to read those well, to understand well what Jesus is leading us to, there's obviously understanding a little bit of the genre of it, that this blessed, as we said, is not the Cadillacs and you know nice houses, but is a spiritual kingdom wisdom form, has a spiritual wisdom content of what God is doing. We think of flourishing as, or thriving or happiness what we're striving to find in that blessedness that Jesus talks about is something richer than just our Americanized and sometimes kind of simplified version of what is the blessed life? What is the contented life? And Jesus really proves it to us, as Matt was saying already, through subversive things rather than where we perceive or where we pursue or how we pursue blessedness or 
richness. It's counterintuitive. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. That's what we're that's what we're after here. You know, we sort of think if my life is going to be satisfying and rich and flourish and thrive and whole and happy and all those kinds of things, then I've got to, you know, go to college and get a job and have a family and all those kinds of, you know, that kind of American dream kind of deal. But the reality is, I just learned a couple weeks ago, this statistic, 70% of the world's Christians live in places where they're persecuted. 70% of believers around the world are live in fear of suffering for Jesus. So we're in the minority. Yeah. That's a pretty sobering thought. It's a, a general rule that a good sermon once stripped of its cultural specifics should be able to be preached and understood in any culture that you can imagine on earth. So when we're thinking about brothers and sisters across the world that are persecuted, and if we bring in what Lanier is saying, this Americanized version of what it means to be blessed, uh, those two don't compute, right? Yeah. They, they don't mix together. It wouldn't make sense to them. Uh, what does it mean to be blessed? Well, it means to have a really nice car. Well, you know, I live in a mountain village where we transport mangoes and coffee crops on the back of a donkey. Does yeah. that mean I'm not blessed? So, I, I mean, I have a student actually in an online seminary course in preaching who lives in a country where there's a rising Christian persecution. He had written on Facebook a few weeks ago that that persecution was kind of ramping up. You know, and I th when I read the Beatitudes, I think how different must he read the, as a pastor in a country where he lives under threat that if he does his work, he very well may suffer. How different his reading of this text must be from mine. For us in the United States and in Western culture in general is uh, what I would assume most of our listeners are, where most of our listeners are coming from. It's good to be told that this is counterintuitive because I think we sense that, but it's also very countercultural as well. And like you're saying, your, your student living in a different culture is, is going to read this perhaps differently or maybe even very differently than the way we would. But I was thinking in anticipation of recording this episode, if you had to take the ideal of what it means to be someone from the United States and you were to write the American Beatitudes, the words that I was coming up with were blessed are the powerful, blessed are the confident. For they shall inherit the Oval Office. Blessed are the independent, the proud, the efficient, the pragmatic, the competitive, the wealthy. Hardworking. Hard Hardworking. Those that pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Blessed are the ambitious. And so this is very opposite of what our culture is preaching. That's a completely different set of beatitudes. And actually, I think that those things don't bring <laughs> blessing. They bring cursing in the long run. And that's the point, right? Yeah. Is Jesus is providing, and maybe this is key. I mean, anytime you're looking at the Bible, the introductory statements are, are key for any text, especially the Bible. Introductory statements are key for understanding what's coming later. So here's the first major teaching that Jesus offers in Matthew, and if you want to look at canonically in the New Testament. And he is providing the ethics of the kingdom of God. And they are radically different from 21st century Western ethics. They're radically different from first century Roman Empire ethics, right? I mean, the Roman Empire was a lot more like, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the warriors, blessed are those who have high honor status. 
blessed are the blessed free, the not the slave. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, it's remarkably important to understand that what Jesus is giving us here is a radical alternative vision of human life, human flourishing, human thriving, of happiness. You know, maybe we can use the word happiness, but say, hey, you know, let's let's critique the shallow, emotional, sort of temporal, short-lived kinds of things and talk about deep happiness. These are great reversals. And I, you know, want us to, that should strike us when, when we read it, that God is privileged these people with his favor, but it's in such a way that it looks upside down to the world that we, you know, are used to moving through. Mm -hmm. It could produce happiness, but that's more the subjective response to it. So it's not, you know, if you reflect on the fact that you are under God's blessing that he's pronounced his favor over you, that could bring internal happiness and joy, even if that's not what the word means necessarily or how it should be translated. But that doesn't mean it can't come into the equation as you interact with this. So you want to suggest there's there's an objective formative element here maybe. Yes. I think Jesus is presenting an alternative reality to what the Jews are experiencing in the Roman empire and what just you can see and take in with your five senses. And he's saying in God's economy in God's household, in the kingdom of God, these are the people who have received his favor, who have it, not, you know, I hope that someday God will work it out for these poor marginalized people saying, no, you need to look at the world upside down if you're gonna understand. And you get these kind of paradoxes and reversals throughout, you know, Jesus's ministry. It's the ones who choose to exalt themselves that will be humbled. It's the least who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven, etc. He makes his comments on the law later by prefacing them. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and it's almost like he's doing that here now. Culture has told you it's the wealthy and the powerful and the warrior who are blessed. But I say to you, it's actually the opposite, which I think is very significant and sets the tone for the rest of the entire sermon. 